welcome back to another exciting episode of Gap and Wrap Biosimilars podcast series, the podcast that dives deep into the world of biosimilars in rheumatology and gastroenterology. I am your host and sitting rap president, Amanda Mixon, and today we have a great episode in store for you. We're going to discuss the intricate regulatory pathway to biosimilar approval, exploring what exactly it takes for these agents to be sanctioned. Now, let's introduce our guest for today's episode. Joining us today is Danielle Gotti-Palumbo, a clinical PharmD at Northwell Health, Division of Rheumatology. She's a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, sits on RAP's board of directors, and has a great deal of knowledge in the area of biosimilars. Welcome, Danielle. I'm happy we get to talk about the subject of biosimilar approval. Yes, thank you. Um, it's an honor to be a part of this podcast, and it's really an honor to be a part of RAP. Uh, RAP for me has really helped shape my career, has opened up many educational pathways that really helped build on my rheumatology knowledge and become an expert in my field. So I'm really excited to be here. Oh, well, thank you. And yeah, we really are could not be as successful as we are without you. Uh, and of course, all the PharmDs that we have as part of RAP. Um, well, now getting into, you know, the, the crooks of today's episode, you know, I don't think we can talk about regulatory pathway to biosimilar approval without starting it off with the idea of totality of evidence. Danielle, can you give me and our listeners the rundown on this term and what exactly it means? Right. So we can't talk about biosimilars without first discussing a few of the definitions, right, of what biologics are, biosimilars are. So biologics in general are made, are products that are made from living organisms. And no two organisms are exactly alike, right? So um, even if you were twins, your DNA would be different, right? So when we talk about biologics, and a lot of the biologics that are currently on the market, that are currently FDA approved, the, the brand name products for, you know, for easier uh, terms, would be referred to as the reference product. The biosimilars, however, are a newer term, and those are, pro are biologics that are created to be highly similar to the reference product, meaning that there is no clinical meaningful difference that they found between the two. Um, and then another term that's that's thrown out there is interchangeability. And these are based on switch studies that show that you can uh, switch from reference product to biosimilars or vice versa without affecting efficacy and safety. So when a biosimilar is approved, um, it is approved through the abbreviated 351K pathway, which is the concept of totality of evidence used by the FDA for evaluation and approval. Now, this pathway is designated to establish both quality, safety, PK, immunogenicity, as well as efficacy of the proposed biosimilar um, and the reference product to find that there's no clinical meaningful difference when comparing the two. Uh, now, being similar in only a single aspect of the reference product um, isn't sufficient enough for FDA approval. In fact, um, they have to review the entire data package in order to get a biosimilar approved. And this systemic approach really relies heavily on comparative analysis on the proposed biosimilar and the original reference product in terms of structural and functional characteristics, as well as non-clinical and clinical assessments. 
Um, and this effectiveness of uh, this approach is really based on the acquisition and comprehension of knowledge in regards to the proposed uh, biosimilar and the reference product. And this really allows for any interpretation of any disparities between them to um, kind of answer any lingering uncertainties and resolve them prior to uh, the approval of these drugs. Wow, that was, I have to say, that was the first time I really um, kind of understood what it means. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, so I, I feel like what I'm hearing is, you know, totality of evidence um, encompasses various types of data and studies that all contribute to the evaluation of similarity and safety of biosimilar products compared to their reference biologics, correct? Correct. Yep, that's it. Awesome. All right. So something you mentioned, um, you know, is that the kind of the totality of evidence approach really relies on structural and functional assessment. Can you uh, explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So um, when we discuss like a like a medication that gets FDA approval, right? So any original medication or biologic that first comes out, um, maybe it's the first in its class, or maybe it's the first drug to treat a disease. Um, the reference products are the main are the first drugs, right? So their main focus and goal is to determine clinical effect and that it's effective for treating whichever disease it may uh, be treating, right? So majority of their evidence and clinical um, clinical um, impact is based on determining effect. But biosimilars really don't have to do that, right? Biosimilars are based on a reference drug. So the reference drug already did that for them. Their main focus is to establish similarity. So in regards to totality of evidence and FDA approval of biosimilars, if you Google image uh, totality of evidence, it'll come up with an evidence of um, totality of evidence in a pyramid structure. So there's a four-step structure. And really at the base of that structure is always analytical, structural, and functional assessment. And what this means is that they are going to assess the analytical studies are the foundation of biosimilar development. And the clinical studies are really only used to verify the implication of those analysis. Uh, so that's the main difference between reference product approvals and biosimilar approvals, right? Um, and these studies involve a comprehensive comparison of the physiochemical as well as the structural properties of the biosimilar in comparison to the reference product. The goal is to demonstrate that the biosimilar has the same molecular structure, uh, mechanism of action, amino acid sequence, critical uh, quality attributes, as well as FC binding mechanism to the reference product. So basically are um, structurally similar. So if structural and functional assessment are the base of this totality of evidence pyramid, then what's on the top of that? Right. So the, following up the pyramid, the next step would be the non-clinical uh, testing. And these non-clinical testings are known as preclinical studies, and they're really um, there to assess the toxicity as well as the immunogenicity of biosimilars. Um, and these are typically done in vitro or in a lab um, and also in animal models prior to human studies. And what these studies really provide is valuable information on the safety as well as the biologic activity. So, you know, kind of continuing on this, you know, pyramid of evidence, then, then what's next? Right. So moving right up along is the comparative clinical pharmacology studies. And these studies are the human 
uh, studies. And as a pharmacist, this is the part, this is the meat and potatoes of the of the process of approval. And this is where I find more fascinating, right? Because it goes into the pharmacokinetics and also the pharmacodynamics of the biosimilar. So in PK or pharmacokinetics, we look at the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination in the human body, as well as the pharmacodynamic effects on um, the effects of the biosimilar on the target and relevant biomarkers. Um, but something to also consider here is also the clinical immunogenicity. Um, immunogenicity is the is basically how your body responds or how your immune system acts in response to an agent, um, or in this case is the biologic, right? So um, in terms of this clinical pharmacology studies, they do look at that immunogenicity um, and they're included in these in, in this. Uh, section because they want to monitor um, if patients will develop any anti-drug antibodies in patients. Um, it also looks um, to see if there's any difference in the immunogenic uh, potential between the biosimilar and the reference bio biologic. Um, and these are important because they also assess the risk of immune reactions as well as potential impacts of the biosimilar on uh, safety as well as efficacy. Okay, I, I feel like I'm really understanding this. We're kind of working our way up this pyramid. You know, are we are we at the top? Are we close to the top? Um, you know, this is all such fascinating information. Yeah, so we're basically at the top. So like we said earlier, um, biosimilars really don't have to have uh, the clinical studies um, to prove that it's effective, right? Because they're basing that off of the reference product. So at this point of the pyramid, um, the next, the top of it would be clinical studies um, to evaluate um, uh, you know, further studies that are may be needed. Um, but at this point, a lot of biosimilars may be ready to be FDA approved um, based on analytical, the non-clinical, and also comparative clinical data. Um, however, sometimes there's still questions that may arise on efficacy and safety. And if there's uh, any questions on if the biosimilar is truly uh, found to be have no clinical meaningful difference, if there's any questions that may arise, this is the, the part of the pyramid where they, they you know, require further clinical trials to um, kind of um, answer those questions in regards to safety and efficacy. And um, that's where these additional studies come into play to answer any questions based on, on that. Okay. This is, you know, really such great information for us to understand, you know, how these things, you know, came about and, you know, now kind of shifting gears a little bit just to focus on, you know, more the, the practical aspect of this, because, you know, I do think that, um, you know, in medicine, we are going to be, um, you know, in some ways it's going to be dictated based on what an insurance might cover for a patient. Um, you know, we could potentially have a patient on one medication that they've been on for so long, and then they're going to be changing to something different. Uh, you know, so I'd love some ideas from you on how we should, you know, be talking to each other, um, to other providers, to, um, you know, patients, um, just to try to help them understand these concepts. Uh, you know, so I guess, you know, to make it a little bit more simple. So when we're describing this kind of totality of evidence to patients, um, they may have questions about biosimilars. What do you think is the easiest way to do this to help ease some of their concerns um, while trying to keep it simple for them to understand? Yeah. So biosimilars for patients are completely a new term for a lot of patients, right? So everyone's very familiar with generics. Um, they're, you know, from, you know, 
any medication that they've basically been on, right? So biosimilars and, and going over what a bios, biologic is for that instance um, is kind of a main focus that you want to just make sure that you educate patients on. And biosimilars um, in the same sense, similar to what a generic is, right? A generic is a synthetic copy of a branded product, right? But a biosimilar is uh, a similar drug to a biologic. And since biologics are made from a living organism, they cannot be exactly the same. So the best way that I've I've even learned um, is to think of biosimilar development as a brewing process, like brewing beer or even uh, making pizza from, from yeast, right? Um, so simpler enough is in the brewing process of beer. You start with yeast, which is a living organism. Uh, you brew it, you steam it, you um, ferment it, uh, you add a little carbonation to it and you bottle it up and there you have beer, right? But every batch is different, is slightly different. It's still the same taste, right? But the batches may slightly be a little different because the yeast has, uh, you know, uh, grown a little bit or added more yeast, right? So um, understanding how biosimilars are developed and how biologics are developed are, are basically your first step. And then in regards to biosimilars and the totality of evidence, um, majority of the studies that go into biosimilars are to ensure that they are similar to the reference product. So basically the structure, functionality, and really emphasizing that with patients that this has this product has undergone extensive research to ensure that they are structurally, functionally the same or similar to the biosimilar as well as safety and efficacy. So really encouraging them that um, that this in terms is just um, a similar product to the biologic that they've been on. I love that. I especially love the beer analogy. I mean, practicing in Colorado, um, that's everywhere. So I think patients, at least I can tell you in, in Colorado will definitely um, will like that analogy. Uh, and I, I would assume that, you know, probably talking to providers, it would be pretty similar with how we're describing it. Does, does anything about your answer change if, if you're talking to another provider that might ask you, let's say it's even their primary care provider that says, hey, this patient was on X medication. And now I notice that they're on Y medication. Is, you, you know, is, is that concerning? Should I be concerned? Yeah. So for, for physicians and, and based on just different specialties, right, they may not have uh, too much experience with biosimilars. And I think for providers, especially um, new biosimilars, right, providers are a little hesitant to use them right up front because they don't have any experience with them, right? So I think going through like what a biologic is and how it's different and how it's made from living organisms, making sure that providers understand that, how batches are different, right? So just the, the totality of evidence that goes into that, you know, this is what a biologic is, making sure that they know that. But for a physician or provider standpoint, um, the they really emphasize and want the data on safety, efficacy, as well as immunogenicity, right? So um, they want to look at the nuts and bolts, kind of where the pharmacist likes to look at, right? Are they different in immunogenicity? Do they provide, do they develop anti-drug antibodies to this biosimilar as they as they would um, or would not with the reference product? So ensuring that in the totality of evidence, they do look at extensively the clinical aspect, the clinical pharmacology aspect of the drug um, and evaluate for safety and um, and quality of these biosimilars um, is what I would emphasize with providers here. Great. Yeah. I, 
you know, so, so, so far, you know, we are starting to get experience, you know, at least where I practice, um, definitely with the infusible drugs. I think it'll be really interesting now transitioning to some of the sub Q medications. Um, have you started noticing that, you know, some of the sub Qs oh, changing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you? Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. I haven't experienced that yet, but you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously just a matter of time. Are you seeing patients, you know, currently having these concerns or, you know, are you seeing a lot of patients being changed? Yeah. So right now um, it is mostly affecting us and we're trying to kind of ease that transition with the patients. Um, So, you know, I've had patients call and say, oh, my insurance company covers the biosimilar as opposed to the reference product. Um, And it's like, thanks to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's, uh, it's definitely a learning curve, but you know, in regards to patients and their concerns with, uh, with biosimilars, um, the questions are going to start. And we do have to be prepared to educate patients on this, um, especially because these are the sub-Q and they're readily available for patients. Um, so switching to a, a biosimilar for patients, some patients may be okay with that. Um, it's just the same thing as, as a patient getting a generic, right? Sometimes you say, oh, your insurance doesn't cover the brand, but they'll cover the generic. Some patients may be okay with that, right? right? They don't cover the reference product, but they'll cover the biosimilar. Okay, no problem. Um, other patients may say, well, my physician or provider or nurse practitioner uh, prescribed the, you know, this reference product. How come I can't get that? Um, I want what they said I was going to get. So then there's another level of education, right? Um, based on, no, well, this is similar. This is in the same class. And it's similar conversations that we have right now that their insurance may cover one reference product versus another reference product, right? Um, same class, same effect. It's just that the insurance covers this. Okay, no problem. Um, but then there's another level. And this is where I feel like is going to be a harder impact for patients is that insurance companies are going to dictate which they cover. Um, and basically, the insurance is going to say, no, we cover now this biosimilar um, and not the reference product. And if a patient has been on a reference product for the, in, I don't know, even a year, right? Um, kind of trying to um, give them education on what a biosimilar is, and now their insurance only covers the biosimilar, um, that's really going to be majority, I think, of where our educational portion is going to go into. Um, and having the patient understand that. Like recently, I had an insurance company, I needed to do a prior authorization for the brand product um, or the reference product, and now there's a biosimilar out. And the insurance company approved the biosimilar with for a year. And I'm like, but the patient's been on the reference product for over, you know, five years. How can you approve the biosimilar, but not the, the reference product? And they basically said, well, you have to tell us why the patient can't take the reference product. But there, there needs to also remember that even though they are biosimilars being approved, not all of them are approved for interchangeability. Meaning that if they are on the reference product, they there's no switch study to show that you can switch from the reference product to the biosimilar and that it doesn't affect safety or efficacy, right? So for new starts, you can start on the biosimilar, fine. But if a patient's already been on a reference product, you have to make sure that the biosimilar that is approved is interchangeable before you can easily just say, okay, I'll give the biosimilar instead. So for that insurance company, you know, I called back and spoke to another representative and was like, listen, there's no switch study and they're not approved as interchangeable. So you can't approve this biosimilar um, if the patient's been on the bio, bio, the reference product for five years. 
right? And then luckily that was approved. But these insurance companies are going to, of course, of course, for costs and everything, um, definitely approve biosimilars easily um, than the reference product. So that's wow! Again, you're just kind of further reiterating how important it is to have clinical pharmacists in practice. Uh, and, and I can't, you know, stress that enough. So hopefully, you know, as time goes on, more and more clinical PharmDs will be in rheumatology practices. I truly wish that you um, practiced with me because yeah. it would make my life so much easier. Um, but, you know, again, it, it, this is all such interesting, you know, information. And I think it it, it is happening. It's It's been happening and it's going to continue, I think, even in a much larger scale. Right. And so it's really important, I think, that we all understand this because it's, you know, it's whether we perhaps, you know, like it or don't like it or, or whatever our, our personal feelings are on it, it's happening. And so I think having a good knowledge base and understanding, I think, will just give us more comfort uh, when we, when we're using these, these products. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, with that, um, you know, again, uh, this brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, we've had the pleasure of diving deep into the fascinating world of biosimilars and exploring the intricate pathway to their approval. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to our incredible guest, Danielle, for sharing her expertise and insights with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Amanda. It really was a pleasure to be a part of this podcast. We hope today's discussion has provided you with a comprehensive understanding of the pathway to biosimilar approval and the efforts being made to ensure their safety and efficacy. Whether you're an APP, a patient, or simply someone interested in the future of medicine, it's crucial to stay informed about the latest advancements and policy developments in this field. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gap and Wrap Biosimilars podcast series. I would also like to say thank you to Pfizer and Amgen. Without their continued support of APP education, this podcast would not be possible. Please see our show notes for highlights from this episode and to fill out our evaluation so we can receive feedback. Make sure you join us next time as we discuss differences between biosimilars and generics. Remember to follow GapCast and RapCast so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, have a great day.